Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the key themes that runs throughout Blaise Pascal's Pensées is a sort of double-sidedness of human nature that he thinks that we need to recognize and keep in mind and constantly juggle and deal with. And that is a contrast between on the one side, the greatness, the grandeur of human nature, of human beings, and on the other side, the wretchedness or misery, depending on how you translate it, misère in French, of human beings as well. And we're positioned sort of in between these, not in a neutral zone, but partaking of both, as we're going to see. And the first discussion of this in the Brunschweig edition or arrangement of the Pensées, remember that there are multiple arrangements, happens in the course of a discussion of the two infinity and of thinking about ourself in relation to the universe. So, you know, he talks about enlarging our conceptions beyond all imaginable space, retreating or returning into oneself. Let the human being consider what they are in comparison with all existence. Let him regard himself as lost in this remote corner of nature. And from the little cell in which he finds himself lodged, I mean the universe, let him estimate at their true value these human things of the earth, kingdoms, cities, and himself. What is a man in the infinite? And then we can look at things being infinitely small as well. But the main thing here is that he tells us that we want to consider ourselves in relation to what he calls the two abysses or twin abysses of the infinite and nothing, right? Uh, a person who looks at themselves in this metaphysical frame work will be afraid of themselves and observing themselves sustained in the body given by nature between these two abysses will tremble at the sight of these marvels. And I think as his curiosity changes in admiration, he will be more disposed to contemplate them in silence than to examine them with presumption, with pridefulness. And then he says, here's the, the real upshot. In fact, what is the human being in nature? A nothing, a neant in comparison with the infinite and all unto in comparison with the nothing, a mean between nothing and everything. Since the human being is infinitely removed from comprehending the extremes, the end of things and their beginning are hopelessly hidden from him in an impenetrable secret, he's equally incapable of seeing the nothing from which he was made and the infinite in which he is swallowed up. So metaphysically, you know, as for Descartes' arrival to Pascal, the human being is between being and nothingness. Now, he goes on from that to his famous dictum of the human being as a thinking reed, Rousseau Passant, in a much later section. And he tells us, man is but a reed, the most feeble thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed. The entire universe need not arm himself to crush him, right? We can snap like a reed, a vapor, a drop of water suffices to kill him. But if the universe were to crush him, 
man would still be more noble than that which killed him because he knows that he dies. And the advantage which the universe has over him, the universe knows nothing of that. So on the one side, the greatness of us consists in that thinking. On the other side, that doesn't guarantee anything for us. We can be snapped like a twig, right? And so he says, all our dignity consists then in thought. By it, we must elevate ourselves, not by time and space, which we cannot fill. Let us endeavor then to think, well, this is the principle of morality. In the next section, 348, he says, a thinking read, it is not from space I must seek my dignity, but from the government of my thought. I shall have no more if I possess worlds. By space, the universe encompasses and swallows me up like an atom. By thought, I comprehend the world. So again, we have this dialectic between misery and being almost nothing in comparison with the universe and the greatness that thought allows us. So another vital dimension of this. He also talks about how we can view human nature in multiple ways or through multiple frameworks, we might say. He tells us the nature of the human being may be viewed in two ways. The one according to its end, its purpose, what it is that human nature was made for. And then it is great and incomparable. The other according to the multitude just as we judge of the nature of the horse and the dog popularly by seeing its fleetness. And then the human being is abject and vile. So again, greatness and misery. These are the two ways which make us judge of him differently and which occasion disputes among philosophers. And here we're getting to something very interesting, right? That we're going to pick up very shortly. He says, these are the two ways which make us judge differently in which occasion disputes among philosophers. One denies the assumption of the other. One says he is not born for this end, for all his actions are repugnant to it. And the other says he forsakes his end when he does these base actions. And he goes on to talk about Port Royal, which Pascal was associated with in this section 416 for Port Royal, greatness and wretchedness wretchedness being deduced from greatness. So now it's not just that these are two different poles and two different ways of looking at it. Our very misery, our very wretchedness is derived from the greatness that we don't realize. This end of being a genuine human being fitting into the cosmos as a creature of God that has the capacity to take in the cosmos and then failing at that. Right? And he says, we also deduce greatness from wretchedness. So some have inferred human wretchedness all the more because they've taken their greatness as a proof of it. And others have inferred greatness with all the more force because they've inferred it from his very wretchedness. All that the one party has been able to say in proof of his greatness has only served as an argument of his wretchedness to the others. Isn't that interesting? So when you make a proof for yourself, Others who don't accept all the assumptions that you have going on, the inferences, they can interpret that in a quite different way. And he says, because the greater our fall, the more wretched we are and vice versa. The one party is brought back to the other in an endless circle, it being certain that in proportion as men possess light, they discover both the greatness and the wretchedness of human beings. In a word, the human being knows they are wretched. They are therefore wretched because they are so, but they are really great because they know it. He goes on and says, the twofold nature of man is so evident that some have thought we had two souls. 
A soul that's great and a soul that's miserable. A single subject seemed to them incapable of such sudden variations from unmeasured presumption to a dreadful dejection of heart. And he says, following up a little bit, it is dangerous to make human beings see too clearly their equality with the brutes, the other animals, without showing him his greatness. It's also dangerous to make him see his greatness too clearly apart from his vileness. It is still more dangerous to leave him in ignorance of both. So we have three mistaken ways of going. Emphasizing greatness, not focusing at all on misery. Emphasizing misery, not focusing on greatness. Not teaching the human being about either, which is what they are, right? At at a very important level. And he goes on, it's very advantageous to show him both. The human being must not think he's on a level either with the brutes or with the angels, nor must he be ignorant of both sides of his nature, but he must know both, right? He goes on a little bit further after this and says, I blame equally those who choose to praise the human being and those who choose to blame or criticize him and those who choose to amuse themselves. And I can only approve of those who seek with lamentation, right? Now, we're going to come back to the philosophers. He's going to tell us that the philosophers have actually kind of screwed things up in their own ways. He tells us this is in in section 524. The philosophers did not prescribe feelings suitable to the two states or appropriate feelings, sentiment proportionné to these states of misery and grandeur. So he tells us how. They inspired feelings of pure greatness, right? And that is not man's state. Pure greatness is great. We do participate in greatness, but not purely. They inspired feelings of pure littleness. That is also not the human condition as well. And he goes on and says, there must be feelings of humility, not from nature, but from penitence, not to rest in them, but to go on to greatness. Likewise, there must be feelings of greatness, not from merit, but from grace and having passed through humiliation. So in effect, he's saying the philosophers have not completely grasped human nature. What they're doing is a little bit too abstract by comparison to what Christianity is going to offer us, right? A little bit earlier, he said, there is no doctrine more appropriate to the human being than this, which teaches us our double capacity of receiving and losing grace because of the double peril to which we are exposed. What is that? Despair or pride. When we focus on our greatness, we are tempted to to pride. When we focus on our misery or littleness, we are tempted to despair. Neither of those are what we actually want. And he goes on and he talks about something really interesting here. This is what we'll conclude with. In 525, he says, misery induces despair. Pride induces presumption. What can get us out of this? The incarnation, he says, shows the human being the greatness of their misery by the greatness of the remedy which they require. So the incarnation, this Christian doctrine, which one can think about, you know, and mull over and sort of meditate on and and find to be also a mystery, is the leading clue out of this mistaken bifurcation and 
oscillation between sides. He goes on to say, the knowledge of God without that of man's misery causes pride, right? So even knowing about God, even like having been preached to and become a convert or something like that, if you don't understand the human misery, you're going to be prideful. The knowledge of human misery without that of God causes despair. Why? Because you look at things and you're like, oh, this is crap. I'm never going to get out of this. You know, only a God could save us. And then a God does come and save us according to this narrative, right? And he goes on and says, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, so the incarnation there again, constitutes the middle course because in him we find both God and our misery. So this allows us to have a proper perspective, the right framework for ourselves. And, you know, this shows us, according to Pascal, how to continually make sense of our greatness and our misery, both at the very heart of what it is to be a human being, or we could say at, at the core of the human condition. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.